Well, good morning. Welcome to Hope. Pastor Trevor, I'm glad you could be here this morning to join us uh, in worship and hearing God's word. Uh, before we begin, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your great mercy. Um, we thank you for your grace for allowing us here to gather once again on another Sunday to hear you speak to all of us through your word, through the spirit. We ask that you help us humbly submit ourselves before you, that our hearts might be contrite before you, and that we would respond appropriately to your teaching. Let your words be heard here this morning, and may we see the lesson that we all need to see, Father. Bring us to the cross, remind us of our sin, help us turn in repentance, Father, and give thanks to your Son and to you for sending him, and for the power of the Spirit that dwells within us. We ask all these things, Father, for your glory, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So it's been about a little over a year since we started the Gospel of Matthew, and now we're in the final stretch, right? This is the last section of Matthew that we're entering into. Uh, We're done covering the discourses of the Gospel of Matthew, and here are now, it's all narrative. All narrative that leads to the cross, the resurrection, and the great commission. Last week, we covered quite a bit. Remember, we covered all 46 verses of Matthew 25, and then there was a big chunk. Today, we're going the other way. We're only doing 16 verses, and it's going to be the first 16 verses of Matthew 26. So if you want to go ahead and open up your Bibles or your apps to Matthew 26, verse 1 through uh, 16, Uh, remember, any passage that is not part of our primary passage will be provided. But other than that, you will have to go to uh, your own Bible. And if you need a Bible... There should be some in the seats below around you. So we're going to read Matthew 26, 1 through 16. And then I'm going to provide some background information, kind of clear up some details of what we read about. Uh, Then we're going to look at how Mary, by a single act, demonstrates for us a key principle of our faith. Something that Judas, in our text today, clearly lacks. So Matthew 26, verses 1 through 16. 16. When Jesus had finished saying all these things, he told his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people met together in the palace of the high priest, who was named Caiaphas. They planned to arrest Jesus by stealth and and kill him, but they said, Not during the feast, so that there won't be a riot among the people. Now, while Jesus was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of expensive perfumed oil, and she poured it on his head as he was at the table. When the disciples saw this, they became indignant and said, Why this waste? It could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. When Jesus learned of this, he said to them, Why are you bothering this woman? She has done a good service for me. For you will always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this oil on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. I tell you the truth, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, one named Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me to portray him into your hands? So they set out thirty silver coins for him, From that time on, Judas began looking for an opportunity to betray him. So this section follows on the heels of the Olivet Discourse of chapters 24 and 25, which that discourse follows uh, the discourse of the seven woes against the Pharisees, against the chief priests um, in chapter 23. Now, one thing to note here, notice how Jesus talks about his being handed over. He says, in two days Passover is coming, then the Son of Man will be handed over. In chapter 25, he just talked about how it's the Son of Man who's going to judge all nations, right? Um, well, actually, in 24. So, they, so the disciples are just hearing the Son of Man language and how the Son of Man is going to return, how the Son of Man is going to judge. But yet Jesus just said, well, the Son of Man is going to be handed over to be crucified, to be killed. So imagine how that the disciples might have pondered that and why they might have been confused by what Jesus is saying. So 
Matthew tells us this. Jesus gives his date for his crucifixion, and then he tells us that the chief priests and elders, they met at the high priest's palace, and they're discussing how do we deal with Jesus? How can we handle him? Now, the timing of this discussion, we don't, we just, we don't know exactly when this happened. Probably after Jesus did his seven woes against the Pharisees and the religious leaders, and possibly during the time that he's giving his Olivet Discourse. Possibly. It could have been sooner. We don't know. And we'll talk more about the timeline of events in a moment, because time in Matthew, it's not linear like it is in the Gospel of John. But let's talk about this high priest for a moment. Matthew identifies the high priest as Caiaphas. Right? And John agrees with this in his gospel, but Luke identifies the high priest in Luke 3, 2 and Acts 4, 6 as Annas. So who's the high priest here? Is it Caiaphas or is it Annas? Is this a contradiction? Is this actually an issue? Well, it's not a contradiction. I'll, I'll explain why. See, Annas is Caiaphas' father-in-law, and he was the high priest until about 15 AD. Now, typically a high priest was a high priest for life, uh, and until, they, until they died. But under the Roman oppression, this wasn't the case. Quite often, if the high priest didn't play by the rules according to the Romans, the Romans would replace that high priest. So even though Caiaphas was the official high priest, Annas, undoubtedly, since he was still alive, carried a lot of weight and a lot of influence, and pro- was probably still viewed as at least a high priest, though not in a formal capacity, but an unofficial high priest to some degree to the Jews. Now, this should help us understand Caiaphas a little bit more. So we have Caiaphas' father-in-law, who is high priest until 15 AD. Caiaphas becomes a high priest sometime around 15, 18 AD, as appointed by the Romans. And he remained a high priest until 36 AD. We read about him in Acts, and um, we read about him in John, and we're going to read about that passage here in a moment. But between 37 B.C. and 67 A.D., there were 28 high priests, about 28 high priests, possibly more. And Caiaphas was a high priest for 18 of those years. So if we we do the math, the average uh, term, I guess you would say, for a high priest was four years. But Caiaphas was a high priest for 18 years. Now, why is that, and what does that tell us about Caiaphas? It tells us that he was a shrewd man who was successful at maintaining his influence, successful at holding on to the power that the Romans had given him, and would do so at all costs. Meaning, he only stayed as high priest because he placated to the Romans, and he cared about his position. And this impacts how he responds to Jesus. In John eleven forty seven through 50, John tells us uh, in his gospel, uh, he shows us this. The chief priests, the Pharisees, called the council together and said, What are we doing? For this man, that's Jesus, is performing many miraculous signs. If we allow him to go on in this way, everyone will believe him. And the Romans will come and take away our sanctuary and our nation. Then one of them, Caiaphas, who was a high priest that year, said, You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is more to your advantage to have one man die for the people than for the whole nation to perish. See, despite the miracles and the teachings of Jesus, these people are like, no, we we can't lose our power. I mean, we have some in the church today who care more about politics than they do about religion. They care more about this nation than they do about the kingdom of God. And I think this verse should be a stern warning to those who cling to America as if it's the promised land more so than they do the gospel. But that's another message for another sermon. So, though here the leaders were unsure how to handle Jesus, the high priest, Caiaphas, he did. He had a solution. A plan to quietly arrest them and kill them, kill him. But notice their timeline. See, they want to wait until after the Passover feast. And the feast lasts a week, seven days. Passover is two days from the time Jesus tells them. Um, and then you got to wait a week for the feast. So, they're expecting at least nine days before they actually act and capture Jesus. But that's not when it's going to happen. Jesus is like, no, it's going to happen in two days when Passover starts. So God's will is done regardless of how badly the chief priest wants to do it after the feast. So now that we got those first five verses out of the way, some of that background information, let's dive into 6 through 13. Here we have Jesus hanging out at the house of Simon the leper. 
Now, if we if we recall what a leper is, it's somebody who has a skin disease. It, it could be a, a a variety of skin diseases fall under the category of a leprosy in Scripture. But if somebody's a leper, they're not supposed to be in a house. They're not supposed to be um, within the city or in the camp. Uh, Deuteronomy 13 tells us that the person with a leper has to be outside the camp, outside the city. And even the house has to be declared clean. So the fact that Jesus and, and his cohort is in Simon the leper's house could possibly mean that Simon was a former leper, which I think is just an interesting thing. Now, if we've been paying attention to Jesus' life, we know that it wouldn't be beyond Jesus to just hang out with the leper, but in order to fulfill the law and to stay under the law without breaking it, he probably would have just healed Simon to make him clean and to make the house clean because when he comes to contact with lepers, he cleans them. So, and he does so by touching them, which is an unclean act by law, but Jesus makes all things clean. So this house, it's located in Bethany, and Bethany is about two miles from Jerusalem. And this is kind of like Jesus' hangout while he's his last week. It's Bethany that he withdraws to. It's Bethany that he, he goes to anytime he leaves Jerusalem after he clean, clears out the temple, does his teaching. He goes back to Bethany. Bethany has some of his dearest friends, John 11, Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. They're all from Bethany. And Lazarus was raised in John 11 in Bethany. So there's a good chance that Lazarus is here at Simon's house as well, as well as Mary and Martha. Well, Mary, we know, is here at the house. Uh, because Mary, in John's Gospel in 12.3, marries the woman who pours the perfumed oil on Jesus. Matthew leaves her unnamed, but John names her um, and lets us know that this is Mary in 12.3, which follows Lazarus being raised from the dead in John 11. So there's, there's a good connection here between the woman who pours oil on Jesus um, and, and Jesus. So they have a close relationship. Now, interestingly, it's not just Jesus who the chief priests want to kill. They want to kill Lazarus as well. And John, um, and John 11, they seek to kill Lazarus because he was raised from the dead. And because he was raised from the dead, people were believing in Jesus. So again, the chief priest, Caiaphas, it doesn't matter what Jesus is doing. They don't like the fact that people are believing in him and taking power and influence from them. They're unwilling to give that up. Now, this brings up the timeline issue. Because if you're trying to follow John's gospel of this event, in John's gospel, he identifies it as six days before Passover. But this event in Matthew happens after Jesus tells them, in two days, I'm going to be handed over. So what is going on here? What is happening? Is this, again, a contradiction? Is this an issue between the gospel writers? Is this evidence that the gospel writers were making this up, or they got it from multiple sources? They didn't know what was going on here. Again, we have to remember each author of each gospel is writing with their own intents, their own, their own purposes, and their own methods. John's gospel is, is chronological. He cares about time. It's the priority. He puts everything in sequence. Matthew isn't. He's more about theme. He cares more about letting the gospel come out thematically than chronologically. Time, the timeline takes a back seat to the teaching points of Matthew. You all with me there? So, for example, here... Mark, Matthew uses a temporal expression, as does Mark for this. He says, while Jesus was in Bethany. That's a generic ti- expression of time. It's not specific. It's very generic, generic. So if we say, while in Bethany, I mean, that, that could be a week. He was in Bethany for a week. So sometime during the week, this is when that happened. But why does Matthew do, do this? Since his gospel is thematically, This event fits fits perfectly in his gospel because there's no more discourses for him to cover for Jesus. All that's left to talk about is Jesus being handed over to Pilate, the trial, the crucifixion, and the resurrection. It's all narrative from here because it follows the rebuke of the religious hypocrisy and the leadership of Israel followed by the Olivet Discourse. And that allows for the setup, for us to understand, one, why the chief priests, especially the high priest Caiaphas, want Jesus dead. So it allows us for that. Um, and it allows us for us to understand 
for Matthew to transition to Judas betraying Jesus. If he had brought that up earlier, thematically it would have distorted things, so to speak. So this is just how Matthew writes his gospel. Now, I know I'm kind of covering like a lot of information, but I'm hoping this just fills in some questions you might have of what's going on and equip you to engage in conversations with those that might be saying, well, how do you deal with these contradictions? Things to be aware of. Now, what has Mary done that Matthew would write about, and why did it bother the disciples? She pours this perfume oil on, on the head of Jesus and probably the whole body as well. As John tells us, it's his head and feet. But this isn't just any oil. It's perfumed oil. It smells good, but it's oil that's kept in an alabaster jar. Now, an alabaster jar was made of a very special stone, and it was made to hold very special, very precious, very expensive substances. But in order to get it out of the jar, you had to break the neck of the jar. So it's like surround on the bottom, it's got a long neck, and it's sealed on the top. And the only way to access what's in it is to break the neck. So you got to break this expensive jar to get inside what's even more expensive. And so she uses this expensive perfumed oil, which Mark in Mark 14.5 says is worth more than a year's worth of wages. Think about that. Having perfume in your house that's worth more than a year's worth of, of wages and then pouring it on some guy's head who's going to die in a few days. This is what Mary did. So you can hardly blame the disciples for thinking, God, that's a year's worth of wages. We could have sold that and used the money for the poor, right? I mean, that makes sense. We, we shouldn't be looking at the disciples and go, you fools. I mean, I think we all would be like, I know how I could use that money. So Jesus steps in and he corrects their, their thinking. He tells them, leave Mary alone. She's done a service. Not just any service, but one that prepares a body for burial. And this says something about the faith of Mary. Now, Mary might not have known exactly what she was preparing Jesus for. But Jesus does say that she did prepare it, and, and maybe she had some kind of sense of what was going to happen, or that he wasn't going to be around much longer. So this act says something about her faith. And it says something about the disciples not kind of understanding what's going on or why it's worth it. And Jesus tells them, look, the poor will always be with you forever. This is allusion to Deuteronomy 15.11, the words that he uses is the exact language in Deuteronomy 15.11. You will always have the poor among you, but Jesus will not. Now, he's not saying, and we need to be careful here, we don't neglect the poor because they're always going to be with us, right? That should never be an excuse as, well, they're always going to be with us, so we're just not going to deal with them. No, we, we are called elsewhere in Scripture to care for the poor and the oppressed and the needy. But because of this act that Mary does, Jesus says she will be remembered wherever the gospel is proclaimed. And we see this in the gospels, and we should ponder this. What did Mary do that caused her to be remembered anywhere the gospel is proclaimed? And should we not want to mimic this action? But before we get there, let's deal with the final verses with Judas in 14 through 16. Notice Matthew gives hardly any space for Judas. Talks about Mary, so you know, verses 6 to 13, and then only gives some loose change to Judas. Judas at some point goes to the chief priests. We don't know exactly when, but Matthew kind of has it set up to make you think that maybe in part because of this action of Mary, you know, he started to think this isn't worth the waste. After all, he was a thief, according to John's gospel. So, he's perhaps getting frustrated with what's going on. And he's probably getting frustrated that Jesus isn't the Messiah that he wants him to be, that he's not gaining the, 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 the military and the might to, to rebel against the Roman oppression. We, we don't know exactly what it was that triggered Judas to go to the chief priests. But he does, seeking an opportunity, seeking an opportunity to gain something because of Jesus, because of his association with Jesus. And so the chief priests agreed to give him 30 silver pieces, which is about five months, um, excuse me, about three months worth of wages. And he does so to tell them when and where they can come in and snag Jesus away. So from that moment on, 
Jesus is continuing, I mean, Judas, excuse me, Judas is continually looking for an opportunity. So now think about this. Mary knew Jesus. Judas knew Jesus. Both spent considerable time with Jesus. Judas spent about two years as a disciple of Jesus, recognizing that the ministry of Jesus was at least three years, but took him a while into his ministry to actually call the 12 to be his disciples. And then Mary, along with her sister Martha and brother Lazarus, were friends of Jesus, witnessed the resurrection of Lazarus. They both witnessed the miracles of Jesus, um, to include Judas saw the raising of Lazarus, and they both heard Jesus teach. Judas, of course, more so than Mary, because Judas was always with Jesus. But yet the response of Judas was completely different than that of Mary. Mary was willing to pour out perhaps the most expensive oil in the house onto the body of Jesus. Judas, on the other hand, was willing to betray Jesus for three months' pay. So they're each, their association of Jesus, they each respond differently. Mary demonstrates for us in a single action that fi- what faithful living looks like, while Judas shows us one can still not be in the faith, though be, despite being closely related, closely associated with Jesus. Meaning you can go to church, you can be in his word, you can be devotional, you can be serving the poor, you can be doing all these things. You can know scripture inside and out, you can even be praying, but yet not be living faithfully. So when we talk about how do we know if we're living faithfully, it's done by our actions. We talked about this last week, right? When we're judged in the end of days, it's not by our faith that we're judged, we're justified by our faith, but we're judged by our works. Right? Everything that we're judged on comes from our works, and our works come from the fact that we are justified by the faith that we have in Christ. And if you need more clarification on that, listen to the sermon on our website, and hopefully that will help. Or go back and read chapter 25. So what does faithful living look like, and what does it mean? There's one characteristic I want us to focus on this morning, just one characteristic, and that's faithful sacrifice. And this is a characteristic that Mary models for us. Um, And it's the one aspect that we all must do and understand. If we don't live, if we don't practice faithful sacrifice or living sacrificially, we're not living faithfully. So what do I mean by faithful sacrifice? Let me define this term for us. It's an act of giving or the enduring of loss that is done willfully, willfully, by choice, by a person which is born out of their faith in Jesus Christ. Not something that's forced upon you. Picking up your cross, when Jesus says you need to pick up your cross and follow him, picking up the cross is not something that's forced upon you. It's a willful acknowledgement and identification with Jesus Christ, willfully accepting the rejection of the world. That's what it means to pick up your cross. In other words, because of our faith in Jesus Christ, we make sacrifices and we are willing to endure loss For his sake, just as Mary was willing to give this expensive perfumed oil to Jesus for his sake. And unlike the high priests and Judas, who weren't, they wanted to cling to the things that they had. Faithful sacrifice is not the act of giving or enduring loss for the hope of gaining something in return. Right? We got to make sure we, we keep that clear. We don't give these things and hope of something in return, we give them recognizing, regardless of the return, of what we've already been given through the person and work of Jesus Christ. When Mary poured the oil on Jesus, she wasn't expecting money or anything back. She just wanted to do a service to Jesus. Now, what does this look like? Why am I making this a point? Well, because I think Scripture is clear that those who inherit the kingdom are those who live faithfully. And so we're going to expound on this point a little bit more by going to Scripture and seeing what Scripture says. We will find that those who live faithfully are those who are imitators of the one of whom they put their faith in. So if we we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we will imitate Jesus Christ. And that just as Mary gave a fragrant offering to God, we too, if we live faithfully, desire to live faithfully, that we must live as a fragrant offering to God. So there's two passages we're going to look at today. First one's going to be Ephesians 5, 1 through 21. Now we've talked about part of this passage last week, um, and now in hindsight as I'm thinking about it, maybe I should have gone with Colossians 3 instead, but you can go to Colossians 3 on your own time. 
Um, and you'll see the similarity there. Um, because we covered 6 through 21 last week, but we're going to cover it again. And it's always good to be reminded of God's word and what it teaches. But we're going to look at Ephesians 5, 1 through 5 first. And this is Paul writing. Therefore, be imitators of God as dearly loved children and live in love, just as Christ also loved us and gave himself for us, a sacrificial and fragrant offering to God. But among you there must not be either sexual immorality, impurity of any kind, or greed, as these are not fitting for the saints. Neither should there be vulgar speech, foolish talk, or coarse jesting, all of which are out of character, but rather thanksgiving, for you can be confident of this one thing, that no person who is immoral and pure or greedy, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. So in order for us to be imitators of God, we must live in love. And Paul qualifies for us what that love is, what that love looks like. By saying we live in love as Christ loved us. And how did Christ love us? He gave himself up for us. His life was a sacrifice, which was a fragrant offering to God. Fragrant offering meaning the aroma, it pleased God like the sacrifices in the Old Testament as the oil and the the burning flesh rose, it smelled good, it was pleasing to God. Just as the expensive perfume Mary poured out on Jesus, so should our lives be poured out. But to do this, you can't partake of the sins of the world. Expensive perfumed oil is probably incredibly pure it's probably not full of other things in it it's pure and likewise our lives should be pure and this tells us that the first sacrifice that you and i must make if we are to live faithfully is ourselves our desires our dreams our wants the desires of the flesh specifically If we desire to lose our lives for his sake, we have to deny ourselves, right? Matthew 16, if you want to be my follower, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. If you try to save your life, you will lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake, you will gain it. Therefore, we don't engage in the sins of the world. We don't engage or support sexual immorality or any kind of impurity. This is why going to a a gay wedding is unbecoming of a believer. To go to a wedding, to attend a wedding, you sit there as a witness. When the, when the person who's up there conducting the wedding says, hey, anyone who have an objection, if you don't object at this wedding, you are thereby saying, I affirm before God that this is well and this is right and this is pleasing. So if you go to a gay wedding fully knowing that it's not, you're acting hypocritically because you're acting as a witness before God just by being there. So we can't, we can't partake, we can't even support sins of any kind, which includes vulgar speech. And, and this speech isn't limited to word choice, right? We often think how we talk is often limited to cuss words or swears or whatever else you might think, but it's, it comes down to context, tone, the motive, the heart. Why are you saying what you're saying? How are you saying it? Even body language and what you type um, on- online, in social, social media, all this falls under vulgar speech. How you communicate. is Are you communicating purely or impurely? And that's hard sometimes. I know for me, I don't know how many times on Facebook, social media, I type something and I'm like, ooh, nope, delete. And I, I want to say it. I mean, I want to say it bad sometimes, but I, I delete it. And, we, and, and it's a practice. And I'm, I'm getting to the point where I just don't type anything at all, which I think that's the proper progression. And eventually, hopefully, the temptation itself will just be, be gone completely. But we've got to deny that desire to always, like, correct or, or speak or be cynical or, or have our way. We have to give that up if we want to live faithfully. And we have to deny our evil desires. We have to seek to walk in the light, not in the darkness. So let's go on and read 621 because Paul is going to tell us this. Let nobody deceive you with empty words. For because of these, these things, God's wrath comes on the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. 
For you are at one time darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but rather expose them, for the things they do in secret are shameful even to mention. But all things being exposed by the light are made evident. For everything made evident is light, and for this reason it says, Awake, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Therefore be very careful on how you live, not as unwise but as wise, taking advantage of every opportunity because the days are evil. For this reason, do not be foolish, but be wise by understanding what the Lord's will is. And do not get drunk with wine, which is debauchery, but be filled by the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making music in your hearts to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for each other in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, and submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. God is clear we cannot continue in our, own, in, in our old ways. We cannot even continue to support them or even vain support for the ways of darkness. We are called to expose them, to expose them, to point out this is a sin. And this is the thing, you're going to lose friends over this. You might lose family members over this. Sacrificial living, this is what's going to happen. You have to deny your reputation. You can't be like Caiaphas, can't be like the high priests who are trying to hold on to their position for the sake of just having that power, having that position, having that esteem, that reputation, you have to be willing to give it up. So when you have that gay friend, that gay brother, that gay relative, it's like, hey, are you coming to my wedding? You say, no, I can't. I can't support this. And you do so lovingly, gracefully, but you don't support it. You expose the darkness. You do this with any sin, whether it's an alcoholic, somebody who has bad language, or somebody who watches horrible movies, or you have a non-believing friend that says, hey, come watch this movie with me, and you know that what's in it is inappropriate, and you shouldn't be exposed to it, and you, you say no. You don't go just to support them, or you don't go just to, so you can have that relationship. Paul is clear. God is clear. Have nothing to do with it. You have to walk in the light. You have to name the sin. You have to urge them to repent of it, but not in a cold-hearted way. It's easy to do it in a cold-hearted way. It's easy to throw a book at somebody who's in sin or who doesn't agree with you and be like, read this, and then walk away from it. If you're going to correct somebody in the sin, know how to lead them from it. Either know how to lead them to Christ, or if they are a brother or sister in Christ, know how to walk with them as they repent of that sin, and you guide them from it. Love them enough to do that. Now, Paul goes on and tells us, therefore, that if we have to be wise, because how are you going to know what's God's will? How are you going to know how to walk in light? How do you know what is good and pleasing? Especially in the days of evil. Especially when people are deceiving you with empty words. Like, it's okay to go to a gay wedding. It's okay to do this because you're doing it out of love. But is that lovingly, and is that what Scripture teaches? So we have to know his word. We have to equip ourselves with what he has offered us. That means, again, we sacrificially give up our energy. We sacrificially give up our time to know his word and how it applies in our lives. It means that we give up other, application, uh, other obligations to find time, to meet and serve one another, to be part of the body of Christ. We can be like the disciples and we can say there's a better use for that perfumed oil instead of pouring it on Jesus. We can say there's a better use for that time. There's a better use for me in the morning besides opening up the Bible and reading it. There's a better use for me um, to spend my energy than reading God's word or or studying a commentary on, on this gospel or this passage that I'm struggling with. We can all say that. In fact, I think many of us do, but we shouldn't because that's what the world thinks. That's how Judas thinks. And that's what Jesus corrects the disciples on. The author of Hebrews reminds us of the necessity for us to gather together regularly in 10, 23, 25. Let us hold unwaveringly to the hope that we confess, that's the faith in Christ, for the one who made the promise is trustworthy. Let us take, the, let us take thought of how to spur one another on to love and good works, not abandoning our own meetings as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other, and even more so because you see the day drawing near. 
This idea of fellowship is what Paul brings us back to at the end of Ephesians 5, in verses 19-20, before he gets into how we need to submit to, how wives and husbands need to submit. We first need to do that in the church. He says, submit to one another out of reverence, and then he goes into how that submission looks like in the family. He does the exact same thing in in Colossians 3. He talks about how out of love for our brothers and sisters in Christ, we are to submit to one another, and he talks about how that submission rolls into the family. But how we submit to one another, how we engage one another faithfully, sacrificially, I think is important. Because again, it's easy to look around the room and judge one another and, and, and look at one another's lives and think, well, you do this and I do that. I give this, you don't give that. And we can make that comparison game. So our second passage, Romans 14, I want us to turn to. It'll be provided up there. You can turn there if you want. So how do we do this within the community of believers? Romans 14, 1 through 12. Receive the one who is weak in the faith. And this is Paul again. And do not have disputes over differing opinions. One person believes in eating everything, but the weak person eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything must not despise the one who does not. And the one who abstains must not judge the one who eats everything, for God has accepted him. Who are you to pass judgment on another's servant? Before his own master, he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person regards one day holier than other days, and another regards them all alike. Each must be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day does it for the Lord. The one who eats, eats for the Lord, because he gives thanks to God. And the one who abstains from eating, abstains for the Lord, and he gives thanks to God. For none of us lives for himself, none dies for himself. If we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For this reason, Christ died and returned to life, so that he may be the Lord of both the dead and living. But you who eat vegetables only, why do you judge your brother or sister? And you who eat everything, why do you despise your brother or sister? For we all stand before the judgment seat of God, for it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow to me, and every tongue will give praise to God. Therefore, each of us will give an account of himself to God. Why does Mary pour perfumed oil on Jesus? And why do the disciples not pour perfumed oil on Jesus? The main takeaway that we have in this passage is love limits liberty. Right? Love limits liberty. See, our faith in Christ gives us lots of liberty, lots of freedom. 1 Corinthians 6.12, all things are lawful for me, but not everything is beneficial. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be controlled by anything. Here in Romans 14, Paul is saying that your love for your brother and sister in Christ ought to limit that liberty to act in a certain way. Yes, you have the freedom to act that way, to do these things, but your love overrides that liberty. So don't be a stumbling block, for one, for your brother and sister in Christ. So Elsewhere, you know, he'll talk about, like, alcohol. And if, if we were to, like today, if you were to go to a friend's house, uh, brother in Christ who struggles with alcohol, uh, and he doesn't want to, or even if he doesn't struggle with alcohol, if he doesn't want to touch alcohol, and you bring a six-pack, and you're like, nah, it's okay, man, I'm just going to, you know, have one. Nothing evil about alcohol. It's not sin to drink alcohol. But in his mind, he's like, I don't want to drink it. Paul would say, yeah, you can drink the alcohol, but he doesn't want to. So don't. Keep that at home. Your love for your brother or for your sister limits that liberty. And in this example, he uses how a person eats, vegetables or not, and then whether a person considers a certain day to be holy. Can a believer eat anything? Yes, if his conscience is clean, clean about it. But if a believer believes otherwise, we don't get in an argument with them about it and try to, you can talk to them friendly if they're open to having a discussion about whether or not it's okay to eat pork or, or what used to be called unclean meats. That's fine. But you don't go to them when they invite you over and you bring like a bunch of bacon and say, man, it's cool. Christ is cleanness. You can eat it and, and, and try to force them to do something that they're not comfortable doing. Paul's saying, let it go. They stand before Christ. You stand before Christ. Likewise, can a believer observe the Sabbath day? Yes, they can. Can a believer not observe the Sabbath day? Yes, they don't have to observe the Sabbath. Do we need to observe Christmas and have a Christmas Eve service? No, we don't. Can we? 
Yes. Do we need to make a special service for Easter on Easter Sunday that's apparently different than the other Sundays? Yes, we can, but we don't need to. Nothing's saying that you have to do those things. It's okay to either do it or not do it. And if a brother in Christ or sister in Christ does one or doesn't do it, you love them regardless. You can talk about it, but only if it's in love, not to cause division. And this is unfortunate. Like last Seventh-day Adventists, they have a lot of theological issues. But like, it's fine that they observe the Sabbath. Now we could take some of these practices and we could put them in a place where they don't belong. That's another issue. But we're guilty of doing the same thing. I mean, we got to be careful on how we observe communion, recognizing it's not a means of grace. It reminds us of the grace that's already been given to us. We don't gain any extra grace by partaking in communion. It's an edifying practice. It helps build us up. It's an act of discipleship and faithfulness, but we're not going to be any more saved by partaking of it. So God does not accept us on the basis of what we eat or don't eat. And this is different from like specific sins of, like, like Paul just talked about, sexual immorality, idolatry, and so forth. Anytime anything enters into the realm of idolatry, it's an issue. Yes, you can frighten your brother, sister, in Christ because they don't inherit the kingdom. Vegetarians will inherit the kingdom if they have faith in Jesus Christ and if they are a new creation. Be, not being a, meat, being a meat eater or not being a meat eater, that characteristic is not a characteristic of a believer. It's an optional. It's an accessory, right? You can customize yourself with that like if it was a video game and you have like a believer or non-believer you can it doesn't matter it's an extra thing now again I've, I've talked about this Paul qualifies the actions of the believers each thing that they do is being done in service of the Lord the one who's eating vegetables is doing so as a service to the Lord just like Mary pouring the oil on Jesus was a service to the Lord the disciples might not have agreed with Mary's use of the oil, but as Jesus told them, it's a service unto me. Likewise, Mary didn't respond to the disciples and try to make them feel guilty for not doing what she did. Right? We got to be careful. Like, if, if you are a vegetarian or if you believe in eating kosher meals according to the Old Testament, you shouldn't be going to your other brothers and sisters in Christ and saying, you shouldn't be eating that. They, they can. It's fine. They don't have to pour oil on Jesus. It's, it's okay. And Jesus doesn't rebuke the disciples for saying, you guys have been with me the most. How come you didn't think of this? I mean, they probably didn't have any expensive oil on them, but he doesn't rebuke them. Now, question for us, are we living faithfully? Is our lives, are they ones of faithful sacrifice? Are you giving of yourself to God? Your time, your energy, your money, possessions, your passions, your dreams. And don't think that this means you have to enter the vocational ministry to do this. Actually, on the contrary, I think it's much easier to do this not being in vocational ministry. You do this best working in the secular world. And you will experience the heat greater in the secular world. Because that's where you're going to lose your coworkers. That's where you might lose that promotion. That's where you're going to lose those relationships because of what you believe in and how you live your life. You do this best wherever God has you right now. Are you giving of yourself to your brothers and sisters in Christ? Are you serving the body? Do you serve in a specific ministry here? I hope. If you don't know where to serve or how you can serve, we can help you with that. Just let us know. We'll get you plugged in. There are plenty of opportunities, and maybe you have an opportunity on your, on your mind that you think Hope can meet, and you can uh, start another area for us to meet those needs. Are you gathering with the body? Are you part of a life group? Hebrews 10, 23, 25, about gathering regularly, it's not just Sundays. It's regularly, daily, as often as possible so that you can form relationships and opportunities that you gather with people outside of Sunday morning. We, we, we're not meant to walk this life alone. We need prayer. We need people that we can confide in, and that happens best outside of Sunday mornings. Because right now, you all are just sitting there looking at me, and I'm just standing up here talking, looking at you all. And we have great fellowship afterwards, but it's not like an opportunity for you to confess your sins, talk about how your marriage is struggling, how you failed more uh, spiritually and morally this week, 
how you need encouragement at work because you got this coworker or family issues. It's, it's not the place. So we need to be gathering with one another outside of this place and places that we have that confidentiality. We have those moments of intimacy. Are you praying with and for the body? Prayer is really such an easy thing to do, but it takes time. And sometimes when you pray, it takes a lot of energy. Sometimes when you pray, you get carried away with your prayer. Next thing you know, it's, it's been a long time, and now you lost all that time, so maybe you don't want to pray. Maybe you feel shameful you don't want to pray. You need to go to the Lord in prayer. Always. All the time. You need to give up your time to pray. You need to, at the end of the day, when you're tired and you just want to go to sleep, you need to pray before, before you get there. Maybe you fall asleep. The next day you need to wake up and think, okay, I went to bed at 9. As soon as I hit the sack, I was out. I, I tried praying, but I was out. So at 8.45, I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray here at the table. I'm going to pray at my bedside. Whatever. Before I lay down, I'm praying. You need to make that commitment. It might mean you can't watch another episode of Jack Ryan or whatever else you're binge-watching on uh, Netflix. You have to give it up and wait. It's going to be there. Unless the Lord comes back, it's going to be there for you the next day. Are you edifying other believers? And are you being edified? Who's discipling you? Who are you discipling? The thing is, discipleship, you, want, you can't do good discipleship unless you do life together. And when you disciple other people, you're sharing life together. Because that's what Jesus did with the disciples, right? For three years, well, about two and a half with the disciples, he walked with them. They walked with him. They knew things. They slept together. And I mean, when you sleep, eat together, you, you share things. You know, you live in a house with your spouse, you share things. You do life together. You know what's up. You don't play this facade. You don't put on that stained glass masquerade. You don't pretend to be somebody else. You are who you are. And you ask the honest question. You share your doubts about scripture, about faith. You challenge one another. If you don't have anybody that you're discipling, and you want somebody to disciple, which everyone should be like, yes, and nobody's discipling you, but you want somebody to disciple you, let us know. Let myself know, let one of the elders know. We will make it happen. We will find somebody for you to disciple. So if you're not doing any of these, or only some of them, what's your reason for it? Do you believe it acceptable to God? Do you think your life is a fragrant offering to him? Are you imitating the life of Jesus Christ? Do you imitate this act that Mary did? Can you imitate this act that Mary did? If Jesus were to walk through the door and he's only going to be here for a day, would you take oil and pour it on him? Or would you be willing to give him something that's significant in your life for his use? Or are you always seeking to do things that have some sort of return for you? You're part of church because you're lonely and you want friends. It's not Christ you want. It's friends that you want. You're part of church because your boss goes to this church, or your boss goes to a church, and if you go to church, you recognize you'll gain favor with your boss. You're not concerned about God. You're concerned about favor with your boss. Why are you part of Hope Community Church? Are you here because of Jesus Christ and it's a service to the Lord? Therefore, you're also here for others? Or is it for whatever selfish reason you might be here for. One of these ways is the way of Judas. And we're going to read about how Judas, what happens to Judas. And you can read the rest of Matthew today if you want to know. If you don't know what happens to Judas. But the other way mimics that of Mary. Pray that you know where you stand and thus that you act likewise. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your mercy and grace. I thank you for your patience. We all do, Father. We walk better some days than we do on other days. And we thank you that you are gentle with us, kind with us, but yet at the same time you are willing to rebuke us and discipline us as necessary. Use us, Father, for that purpose. Help us edify one another. Help us make mature disciples. Help us have your grace in us that's so full that it pours out into the lives of everyone here and those who don't know you. 
Likewise, let us be equipped with the truth so that we know how to correct people, when to correct, the issues that we need to step away from, the issues that we need to step into. Give us that confidence. Help us to have a spirit of prayer and gratitude that we will be brought to our knees to pray, to speak to you, Father, regularly, continually, recognizing what your Son has done for us, what you have sent him to do, and how gracious you are towards us. Help us respond likewise with lives that are sacrificial, that are faithful in how we live. Help us have peace with the things that you give us and how we steward them. Challenge us in how we steward our lives. Put in our hearts the the joy of giving and sacrificing. Um, And whatever you don't call us a sacrifice, Father, help us not feel guilty for holding on to that. Or when you see a brother or sister in Christ doing something, Uh, That is sacrificial. Help us celebrate that um, without feeling guilty or or condemned for not doing likewise. Grant us wisdom in all things and be with those who are unable to be here this morning. Be with those with aching hearts, Father. Some of us maybe perhaps have been walking in in the dark for too long, uh, have done some sinful things this past week or even this morning. Forgive us. Forgive us for our sins. Forgive us for the sins this week, Father. Help us have the confidence to draw near to the throne of grace so that we can find that mercy, that forgiveness, that grace in that time of help in our need. Help us trust in you in all things and continue to use hope for your light here in West Salem. Continue to draw your people here. Continue to send us out into the world. Be with us tomorrow and this week, wherever we work, Father, whether it's at a school, in a hospital, office building, working at home, online. Let Let our speech be seasoned with salt. Give us opportunities to share the gospel. Guide our steps, direct our steps, even when we don't want to, Father. Help us resist the desires of the flesh so that we don't make provision for them, to gratify them. Do what's necessary. Take control of our lives, especially when we are weak and we are unable to stand, cause us to stand, and help us remember that whatever we do, let us do it in service to your Son. Let us do it for your glory. And let us seek to do all things, Father, for your glory. Let us find joy in that. And we ask these things, Father, by the power of the Holy Spirit, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So at this time, we're going to enter into uh, communion. Uh, Real quick note on communion. We had to... uh, change the bread out this morning uh so the bread that uh on this sunday is not gluten-free it's typically gluten-free but it's not gluten-free so if you are if you have a you know like a serious gluten intolerance um the word escapes me but if you have that don't don't consume the bread just 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 pass it all right Uh, so if the elders can come on up for that um, we're going to here, I hope, if you 